There are moments in life where it's, you get the sense that history is unfolding. Have you ever had those moments? Sometimes we have them corporately. And it's those moments where we go, where were you when? You know, and some, you know, where were you when the, the, the planes hit the, the, the Twin Towers? Or where were you when this earthquake uh, occurred? Where were you in 2020 during quarantine? Well, I was home. Yeah, like everyone else. But then we have these personal experiences that you got to bear witness to. And you're like, I think history was being made in that moment. And sometimes we, 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 we think that they're like, well, maybe they're Instagram worthy or maybe they're only story worthy. Uh, maybe they're scrapbook worthy or maybe they're frameable moments. But we have this sense that history is unfolding. Now, I don't know how you experience this. Um, as a sports fan, there's a couple of key moments in my life that I get to experience sporting events. I'm going to date myself going all the way back to 1989. Um, I have been a lifelong San Francisco Giants fan. Grew up in the city, love all the home teams. But there was a pitcher on their roster who had been diagnosed with cancer. His name is Dave Dravecki. Dave Dravecki had a very strong Christian faith. And, and he rose up through the Padres organization, got traded to the Giants in 1987, and here he was pitching in 1989. They were doing well. In fact, during that year, what also happened was they went to the World Series, played what was called the Bay Bridge Series that was interrupted by the Loma Prieta earthquake. And so if you remember watching or, or seeing footage, all of a sudden the cameras just go dark and there's no footage and it was a scary time. But the Giants were in a pennant race. The Giants were competing. Dave Dravecki had been diagnosed with cancer and had been pitching a rehab assignment. They removed half of his deltoid muscle, froze his humerus bone, and they said, Dave, we, ought to, we think you ought to just spend the next part of this year rehabbing and just come back in, in 1990. He says, no, I want to pitch this year. I want to come back. And so he pitches a couple of minor league assignments, and on August 10th, 1989, he makes his, his comeback in this pennant run of a season. It's towards the end of summer, but it means something. And I remember calling a friend, and it was on a Wednesday afternoon. I said, hey, Dave Dravecki's going to pitch, and he wasn't really a fan uh, or, or a close follower. And so I was kind of nerdy, and I was like, no, he's the guy. He's got cancer, blah, blah, blah. He's coming back, and it's a Wednesday afternoon, and I don't have anything better to do. So we go out to Candlestick Park, which is kind of a lousy ballpark to watch any game, but I was sitting in the right field bleachers, and just below the right field bleachers is, is where the players' clubhouse was, near the bullpen. And he comes out, and this crowd of maybe 10,000 people in like a 50,000 seat just roared and erupted. And it was beautiful. And if nothing else would have happened that day, that would have been enough. To come back, even if he got shelled, it would have been just, I mean, what a great story. And so 
he already had won, and then he takes the field. And he starts pitching and doing incredibly well. They were playing the Cincinnati Reds that day. He pitched into the eighth inning, and they won four to three. And I remember thinking, this is one of those historical games. Um, I was always a a Dravecki fan, but now that he had kind of had this overcoming moment, I was like, yes, that was awesome. Well, like I do, I read box scores. I follow the Giants closely. And their next road game was in Montreal seven days later. Seven days later, he takes the field and he's dealing again. He's just coming in, pitching strikes, throwing heat, and he works his way into the bottom of the sixth. And if you know the story, you understand that what it looked like he was throwing towards home plate, the ball goes this way. And you hear this snap. And he says, I thought my arm flew off. It was a clean break of this half a muscle, half an arm. And it and, and he just starts wincing and trying to find his arm. Like, and he goes down. The ball goes over there. The play's live. Everyone's running towards him. Someone picks up the ball and calls time. It ended his career, right? Because at that point, there's just, there's just no coming back. Um, he has his arm in a sling. In fact, when the Giants finally won the pennant, in the celebration, he rebreaks it. I mean, it's, it's that point. It's like it just adding insult to injury. What was interesting is as the shock was down, as the pain medications kick in, he remembers a conversation that he had four hours before the game by a teammate, Bob Nepper. And Nepper says to him, and I remember watching Nepper pitch too, but he said, Dave, today, and I'm going to read you what what he wrote. He says, I hate to burst your bubble, but this is not about the miracle of the comeback. Dave, Um, This is about the miracle of salvation that occurred in your life back in 1981 in Amarillo, Texas. And he says, and God is providing a platform for you through baseball to encourage those who hurt. Wait, wait. My life, I'm a baseball player. That's what I do. And then when you take away the greatest giftedness he has what's left. What is it that defines you? And if that's robbed from you, whether it be your worth, your skill, your degree, your marital status, your your parenting status, what is it that you derive the most sense of worth and significance from? And that thing is gone. What defines your life? Well, that became, I'd like to call a resurrection story, a story that he finds new life. Within the next two and a half years, mid-1991, he becomes a double amputee, first of his arm, then of his shoulder. But hearing the words of Bob Nepper, he finds new life, this second calling, this maybe even what, what God intended all along. That baseball became a stepping stone for a, a ministry that became an evangelism and, and a motivational speaker and, and a source of inspiration to many, to thousands, to having the kind of platform that he could never have imagined if it weren't for baseball, if it weren't for cancer. And the point is this. We, because of the resurrection, are now able to bear witness to new life 
first in others, and then in ourselves. And I would like to talk today about witness as both a noun and a verb. It's supposed to be something that we become, uh, and, and it, but it's also supposed to be something that we see. And as we take notice of God in the Bible, as we take notice and sense God maybe in our prayer lives, as we sense God over time shifting the desires of our heart, what we're really learning to do is learn God's story, God's unfolding growing story within us. Change is inevitable, but growth is never automatic. And so when we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about this impact that life can have, but it's not guaranteed. And so what I would like to say is simply this, just believing in Christ doesn't transform us any more than saying, I'm on a diet and now I'm going to lose weight. Right? Because you can believe in the living God, you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing really change in your heart. And so I think we're called to something more than that. And so the resurrection means that we can all bear witness to new life, even amidst the struggle. So you're like, when is this new life going to start? And I'm saying new life is already unfolding. God is redeeming all things. God is restoring all things. And so today, I want to talk about this idea of change that isn't the same as growth. Um, and, And I really just want to make some observations, and I just have simply one point. And you can open up your app, you can follow along in scripture with me, because I basically want to do a deep dive into a passage out of Acts chapter 3 that I think is kind of interesting, but it might sound familiar, but I want to peel back a few layers. And it's this, is that the idea, the one point that I have is that we are resurrected as witnesses of Christ. That is, we, are, we get to be and we get to bear witness to new life. Hopefully around us and, and maybe even more importantly, within us. And this is the, the, the kind of um, movement that we say yes to when we say yes to salvation. And so in Acts chapter 3, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. This is immediately post-Pentecost. Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit shows up, people are confused, people are hearing all of these native tongues being spoken because they're from all over, and all of a sudden it's like, wait, I can understand them in my own language. And they're like, whoa, this has never happened before. And so there is this outbreak of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is now operating in humanity. This is a pivotal historic moment in the life of all of creation that you and I get to also experience in the here and now. And so Peter and John are doing what good followers of Christ do. At three in the afternoon, they're making their way for a kind of a fixed time prayer. Everyone would gather at the temple courts for prayer at three in the afternoon. And if you were crippled and didn't have the means to have livelihood or earn an honest wage, almsgiving, charity, was part of the culture. 
It was assumed that you were going to help those less fortunate. And so anyone with an ailment would line up outside of the temple. And what greater time to capture someone's imagination when they were following God in obedience and going to pray about something than to sit their palms open. So here's this cripple outside of the the temple, lame from birth. And what does he do? You remember the story. He looks right at him, kind of like, hey, alms for the poor. And Peter looks at him and he goes, buddy, I'm broke. But what I do have, I'll give unto you. Which is a whole story in itself. Don't wait to have more before you learn generosity. Don't wait till you feel like you got bigger margins to learn how to give. Peter says, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And people are like, oh, and this guy's like, woohoo. And he's not only walking, but he's leaping and he's dancing. And they all knew who this beggar was and that he was legitimately lame from birth. So here's where our story picks up. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And he says this. And, and, and you've just got to put yourself, put yourself into the sandals of Peter and John. You've just witnessed the resurrection. This is no joke. You have just followed Christ, realized that when he talked about leaving, he was literal, not figurative. And all of a sudden now, he ascends, the Holy Spirit's breaking out, and these people are being enamored by your religious party trick. What does he say? He says, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, bros, come on now. Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? What were they doing? Oh my gosh, these people have got the gift. Oh my gosh, we got to package this, we got to market this, we got to take this healing road show on the road because we could capitalize on this moment, either monetarily or for the kingdom of God. And they're like, oh my gosh, you are entirely missing the point with the pyrotechnics. Why are you giving us credit? Now, if you've just witnessed the crucifixion, then the resurrection, you are probably going to be hugely enamored with the living Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. But you are almost trying to hold back laughter that people think that you had something to do with it. Gosh, these people are so, these are really dumb sheep. I mean, you can imagine the disciples going, They didn't see what we saw. Why do they give us so much credit for this? I'll give you a funny story. I remember my friend Steve was living with John. John was one of the most domestically challenged people that you could ever meet. A young 20-something who could burn a bowl like a bowl of cereal. I mean, he just wasn't gonna be handy in the kitchen at all. Steve wakes up one morning and he finds someone else's Pillsbury cinnamon rolls where you basically crack them open, put them on a sheet and bake them. John comes out and then you, you know, drizzle a little icing, not like the height of culinary, you know, skill set here. John comes out. He's like, oh my gosh, Steve, these are amazing. These are, you know, mouthful. These are unbelievable. And Steve's like, I... I put them in the oven. That's all I did. You're giving me way too much credit here. Like, I don't, I don't think you eat very good food because if this is amazing to you, you need to get out more. So here's the disciples who are like, why do you give us all this credit as if we did something special? 
All we did is what Jesus did. And Jesus said, I give you all what? Power and authority. Oh, so there's something with being saved. There's something with living into the resurrection that gives us the kind of power and authority to operate with a whole new level of faith. So for these guys, the resurrection changed the way they saw their life, the way they saw their abilities, the way they saw their resources, the way they saw their talents, the way they saw their time and their strengths. They had witnessed such a compelling life that they could not unsee it. They could not unhear the words of Jesus. They could not unexperience the kind of, the kind of relationship they had with Christ that how could they not share it? See, I think there's a temptation for us to sometimes take the credit that's actually from God. I mean, where do I get off thinking, well, I mean, I worked hard in education. I've earned this place in my life. I've earned my status. And like, no, no, no. Who gave me the ability to be able to, mm, no, have clean drinking water? No one. Who, who gave me the ability to have an elite, world-class education? Who Who gave me the ability to have a pantry and a garage fridge? I mean, we're talking about filthy wealth. Is that me? Well, I tried to be a good steward of it. I tried to work hard, but who's the source? Come on now, who's the source? And so we recognize this is what God is doing all along. And we might or might not give credit for our time or our talents or our treasure, but God is at work whether we acknowledge him or not. And these guys were so impacted by the resurrection. They're like, why does this even surprise you? They're like, because it does. They're like, oh my gosh, this is not us. This is Christ within us. Let's read on. Then Abraham, so they go into a bit of a history lesson. And if I was the listener, I would have been a wee bit defensive over this because he uses a lot of you statements. Try having a confrontation where you comes out a lot. Well, you did this and you did this and you did this. And you're like, okay, I'm officially defensive. Put up your dukes. I mean, that, that's how that feels to me. But he says, all right, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus and you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. And you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. That referring to Barabbas. Verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. And this is what I think we're called to be. Last week we were talking about our new identity in Christ. And this is what I'm suggesting to us is that we are witnesses of new life. Have you or haven't you had those moments where you have had maybe a chance a fresh start to begin again? Have you not witnessed someone who gets a clean bill of health and gets to live differently? Have you or not had that chance where it's a near-death experience and had a chance to redirect your life? This is the experience that we have in the outworking of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he calls it referring to what happened to Jesus and what you did to him. Now, how'd you like to hear that you were the one who killed Jesus? I mean, come on. That's not great sort of persuasive preaching argument, right? You're like, sorry. Uh, I mean, what do you say at that point? He's already dead, but he's risen. Before I would get too defensive here, because I studied this this week, or before I would read this largely as a historical text, I had to ask myself, in what way do I resist 
Christ, you killed the author of life. And so now I'm asking the question, because I'm wanting to make this a Bible study, in what way do I thwart, disrupt? In what way do I undermine new life? That's the wrestling match I'm going through as I study and share this word. Are there moments in our life, maybe because of our doubt, maybe because of a sin issue, maybe because um, of of something that we can't let go of, um, say, uh, a resentment, unforgiveness, that kind of thing. Is there something that we are not giving our whole hearts to and we're robbing ourselves and God of bringing new life? Let's just keep going. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, and we're talking about the name above all names again, like we were singing earlier, this man whom you see and know was made strong. See, it's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. See, healing in this case is more than an answer to a problem. If you're like me and you start praying and wondering why isn't God answering my prayers in a more timely or a more accurate, succinct, precise way, and I would say at least in my own wrestling match, maybe the answer isn't the point. Maybe God's doing a deeper work about healing something in me, like my tendency to not trust, my tendency to maybe want to not give up control. Maybe the point of this is is something deeper, like healing a sense of pride, a a sense of self-reliance. The question I would ask is, what's the difference Christ has made in you? And in what ways... Have you been made stronger already? See, we, we like when things come in a timely fashion. We like when things unfold and, and, and kind of claim these promises and can check boxes. But the question is, is what do we do with our faith in the meantime? When it feels like God might be a little distant or off. And, and so in this moment, we have this chance. It, In what ways have you been made stronger? In what ways have you witnessed or experienced simply the chance to begin again? Because I think God is wanting to turn a page, give us a new chapter to write on. And this is the work of the resurrection that we get to bear witness to. It would be really interesting to go through your own life and to take inventory of second chances, of fresh starts. Maybe they're spiritual, but maybe they're just fresh starts. I remember when we were making a move, someone said to Laurel, this was years ago, but said, I'm kind of jealous that you get to move and start out. You can totally be someone different. I'm like, "Um, the problem with when you move is you go with you. Like, you don't get to be someone different just because you change your zip code. Like, we were moving across the country, and I was like, no, that's not how that works. Sorry. But... There are times, I think, in all of our lives that we do get a fresh start to be and practice the kind of person that we want to become. This is the transformational nature of the resurrection within Christian community because I simply can't do that in a vacuum on an island on my own. And then he says these words, repent them and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come. Okay, I just, I read this and I was like, I've read this so many times, but I read it again. I was like, wait, 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 
times of refreshing that come from what? Repentance? I, I don't know any spa that's saying like creating confessional booths alongside of a mas- like massage table saying, come get a back rub and, and confess and it'll be refreshing. No, those things don't go hand in hand. Times of a refreshing will come when you repent. Uh, am, I, am I missing something here? Repentance that leads to refreshing. Now, don't lose sight of who's actually saying this. Who's talking now? Peter. Peter, foot and mouth disciple. Peter, the zealot. Peter, the ready fire aim approach to doing ministry at all levels where Jesus is just shaking his head. Apparently, and Peter was the one who denied him at the end of his life. But apparently, Peter experienced a fresh start, a chance to begin again. He experienced the resurrection, and not just that happened to him, but now it's happening to me. This is powerful, and this is the resurrection at work in a person's life. Peter doesn't just go, oh, that was really cool that that happened to Jesus. Yay, our guy won in the end. No, no, no. He's experiencing new life. But if you follow the trajectory of your life, you also understand that he's still on a growth path. Because if you get to Acts 10 through 14, he's still got the whole Jewish-Gentile divide all messed up. That's another message. But what I'm saying is, he has come through such a radical transformation, and he's now telling if you're willing to turn begin again start over confess times of refreshing will come see the idea that repentance is just being reminded of your inadequacies is just really rotten theology the idea that we can turn and begin again and be reminded of who we are in christ that's something new and that we get to remind us of who we are in light of who god is I want to share something with you in closing, and I don't know how meaningful this would be to you, but I want to share it with you because um, some of it will sound familiar. Um, And if those of you who have listened to me for any length of time know that in... um, When I lived for six years in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, there was an elderly gentleman who became uh, one of the most significant mentors of my life. His name was Bick Moore. Um, Bick, uh, as, as I've shared before, had three careers. So when you want to talk about the chance to begin again and resurrect yourself at a different stage of life, he, um, he had several kids. I think he had four, if not five children, but he fought in three wars. He was a colonel in the army, and then he was teaching or working at the Pentagon when he finally said, enough. I mean, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, he's like, and then he's at the Pentagon, he's like, I've got to get out. So he goes to teach at Auburn University, and um, he's enjoying life, uh, but he and his wife, Joyce, take a road trip, and they start traveling uh, around the South, and they're visiting these small country churches, and the one thing that they realized was all of these pastors um, are lonely. They have no one to go to. And I've got to tell you, when he used to say that as part of his testimony, I thought, well, good. Good for him. He's not talking about me, because I've got, I got my people, yo. Uh, but I'm sure that helps someone other. Like, good for him. And the older I am in ministry, the longer I've done ministry, and, and particularly, you know, further away from multi-staff situations I've got, I thought, that's a real need. Because um, when we go close at the end and ask for prayer time, there's things that I just can't share. 
because it might be about someone else in the room. Or, you know, I mean, it was one of those things. So I just kind of live within a little bit of it. But he felt called to people like me at this stage of life. And I only wish he was still around. Um, but before he could go on to that ministry in his 50s, he says, I should, we're going to call it the ministry of encouragement to pastors. I should go become one. So in his 50s, he enrolls in seminary and then pastors for a few years. And I meet him in his mid-70s, and he was just hitting his stride. I mean, this is the testimony of the resurrection being played out. And he just refused to grow old. In fact, he would come in, and I was leading a ministry called 20-something, uh, fun days. Uh, and um, and, and uh, he said, there's two ministries in this church that actually the rubber meets the road. It's 20-something and this sexual addiction group for men. He says, don't put me with all the old people because all they want to do is complain how loud the music is and their bunions are hurting them. And I was like, oh, this guy's real. Like, he's, like, he refuses to grow old. And so he had this way of speaking into my life. He would come in my office and there was always this prophetic or this challenging word. And, it, and it, I never remember feeling defensive, but I was like, was that Bick or was that God? I, I don't know. And so there was a few of us that would always ask that question. He had this way of challenging me with what he called the graduate pastoral studies. I'd already been to graduate school. I'd spent four years in graduate schools. So I was like, I'm on the Just Say No to School campaign. He's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. And he starts talking about this trajectory of my life, of who I was supposed to become. I was like... I'm already on this path. He's like, no, this is part of your path. And even in my momentary struggles, even though in my opposition to whatever thing I was dealing with, he says, I know, but this is just leading you somewhere else. Don't get lost, kind of the forest through the trees. This, this is leading to that. I was like, Vic, I don't know anyone my age that wants to be a senior pastor. No, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't care if you're a senior pastor or not, but you're going to help build the future of the church. Well, I don't know what that's supposed to look like, but I don't feel like I'm ever supposed to be a church planter. <laughs> uh, and he's like, I don't care, but this is kind of your path. And I was like, oh, he's projecting onto his desire for me. And I, I sort of resisted it. And I talked to some other people. I moved in 2003, uh, in, in, in <clears throat> summer of 2003. And that fall, I was having an instant message uh, conversation with him. He's 83 years old, having this dialogue with me, and I saved it, and I, I wanted to share it with you. Um, I had started a new church in California as the family pastor and doing some other things as well, and so I just wanted to share with you some of the thoughts because, again, this is someone that I had watched um, reinvent themselves because of who they were in Christ. They weren't going to be defined by what they do but who they are in light of who God is in them. And then, again, I started out by saying a witness is, is both a noun and a verb, and so it's someone we're supposed to um, be and become. Uh, I said, well, Bick, I had a conversation last week where I referenced your, quote, graduate pastoral studies regarding my ministry path. He replies, with God or some underling? Um, our teaching pastor and I have hit it off well. Great. Does he have your prophetic gift? Along with a team of people, we're starting a new community for an emerging generation. And then I just like, my prophetic gift? Question mark, explain, question mark. Like, what? Have you ever listened to yourself? 
It's especially evident in wedding ceremonies. Well, he's wanting me to step up in some speaking roles, and I didn't feel like that I was uh, a primary reason for my coming here. His comment was that speaking opportunities don't come along. You take them. He's correct. Selectively taking advantage of opportunities. Your field of study in the grad school is preparation for planting and pastoring an emerging church. Well, what if the emerging church plant model reflects something more like a church within a church than a standalone one? Which has greater opportunity for global impact? I'm like, global impact? Give me a break. Um, I'm becoming more convinced the church's greatest challenge with evangelism is settling for simply attracting people to an event or a service. It's almost like relational evangelism needs a formal model to follow so that it can be mass-produced. And this is where he said the line that I have never forgotten to this day. He says, I think the church is supposed to reproduce like rabbits without the inhibition of the in-laws next door. <laughs> now, do your board members talk like this? I mean, this is good. I mean, th- this, was, this was rich material. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was the best line I've heard in weeks. He says, that might have been the best line I've expressed in years. <laughs> I'm like reading verbatim here. I've often felt that I'm more of a movement-oriented person, which creates a rub when serving within an established local church. And he says, I believe it was Hermit Simon who wrote, once you organize, your mission shifts to simply maintaining the organization. It's the irritant in the oyster that produces the pearl. Well, how do you organize and not become a monument or, or an institution? And he says, we have difficulty recognizing when it, was, when it is God and when it is us. I think at times we give God both credit, uh, give credit to both God and Satan for things that only we are responsible for. <sighs> Bick, I love this banter. It only reminds me of how much I miss our time. However, the kids just showed up and beer needs to go potty. <laughs> he was three. Bless him for me. See you later. You're a gift. Give my love to Joyce. Um, He died uh, shortly thereafter, and this was the last conversation I ever had with him, and it just so happened that I had already saved it. Um, And it was was profound for me. And Bick lived with, I think, many physical ailments, and he lived with a lot of emotional wounds. When you go away to war and you're gone most of the time, your kids don't always appreciate you. He, he lived with some strife. Even though he was dearly loved, there was some struggle in his life. I mean, he wasn't just godly. I mean, we saw his temper. I mean, th- there was something very human about him, too. He, he was a terrible patient. Uh, uh, we, we were laughing with some friends about how he w- made, like, awkward moments when the way he was treating some nurses... Um, uh, but it's also that a res- the life of a resurrected saint. See, I started out by calling this series All Things New-ish, the optional life of a resurrected saint. Just because we believe in Christ doesn't mean transformation is automatic. Just because change is inevitable doesn't automatically mean we're going to grow. And part of what it means for us is learning 
like to live into the reality of the resurrection and, and recognize that we are being changed and transformed. I think this I am thread <clears throat> to me felt like something out of a New Testament writing that maybe Luke or Peter or Paul would be writing to these young believers, like Paul writing to Timothy going, hey, Tim, you're doing this wrong. You're doing this right. Get this together. Don't forget this. And so when I reread this and I come back to it often, especially in discouraged moments, but can I just say, I think you're all here. You're all here online um, because there were people who saw something in me and kept speaking into that. And the reality is, is as we bear witness to the reality of the resurrection, we understand that in every generation, God is trying to raise up a new generation of saints and leaders to do for the emerging culture what hasn't been done before. And we have this little modest experiment called Mission Hills Church so that we can practice a living faith and not just call it a Sunday go to church. But it's, it's tough sledding at times. It doesn't feel largely blessed of God, and yet God is sustaining it. And so I keep praying that we would have a greater heart for the lost. I keep praying that we would have a greater heart to maybe serve and go beyond uh, our walls. I keep praying for laborers for the harvest as we try and build a sustaining ministry. I think when I read this, and I, I, again, the resurrection allows us to bear witness to what we see and simply to testify the difference that Christ is making in me. It doesn't mean that I've been made whole, but it does mean that God is at work. This is the beauty of the resurrection. And it's with that, can I just pray with you now? If you would just bow your heads with me and just... I want you to just think about some things as I've had to do a lot of thinking this week. I feel like I just took a stroll down memory lane and some of it was really joyful and some of it was a little uncomfortable. Um, some of it causes me to take a little bit of inventory and that's a good thing. But as you consider, you know, the reality of the resurrection and, and your belief in it, you know, have you ever witnessed God's healing and restoration? Maybe directly, maybe indirectly. But in some way, you can testify. Maybe it's you saw someone actually work 12 steps into sobriety. Maybe it's we were $20,000 in debt and now we're debt-free. Maybe it's I could never imagine saying I forgive you, but I did. Is there someone God might be calling you to bear witness about the difference he's made? Is there someone that's in your sphere of influence that is ready for a next step, an encouragement, a testimony? See, this is the power of the resurrection. And the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power and spirit that resides in you and I. And so how will we steward that? Hopefully not in a passive belief mode, but in an active faith risk-taking way. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would put people on our path this week that we could talk about the difference that you are making. I pray that you would make us aware of the things, not saying that we're further along than we are and not feeling the need to qualify that we're not further along. But Lord, will you give us words 
Will you give us opportunity? Will you put people of peace in our lives? And will you make yourself more real by the words we we find? Help us to bear witness to the difference that you're making. Help us to see and to testify of your work in us. We want to just worship you now and ask that you would just take captive our thoughts and and, and guide us and direct us and lead us. And and we we ask that individually, but we also ask that you help us as a church to be for Austin what you've called us to be, to be a, a new way to reimagine faith and community and mission you would give us favor in increasing ways with people who have journeyed with you for a long time and people who have run from you for a long time. So we trust you in all these things, Lord. Let's worship together. Would you stand with us?